How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey, everyone. Before we kick off today, I have to share some big news with you. My book is here, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, and it's available now via the links in this week's episode description for pre-order. I've written this guide to hold your hand as you navigate preparing for birth. It has my knowledge of over a decade in midwifery to make sure that you are properly equipped with honest, reliable and evidence-based information about your body, baby and birth so that a positive and empowering journey that you deserve at this important time can be achieved. Click the link in the episode description to get your copy ordered now. Pre-orders are super important and your support in helping me on my mission to empower women means the world. Hello and welcome to the Pregnancy Wellness Podcast, hosted by me, Pip, a practicing midwife who is on a mission to provide you with real evidence-based information about pregnancy, birth and the postpartum. Each episode, I'll be joined by special guests and leading experts to equip you with all the information you need for an empowered journey from conception right through to motherhood. So, with no further ado, let's make a cuppa and get started with today's episode. We hear about labour and childbirth in so many forms, but do we actually understand the processes and the amazing changes that our bodies make during birth? On this week's episode, I'm joined by midwife Angie, who's going to explain the physiology of birth and demystify all of the common terms that we hear, such as cervical dilatation, contractions, and the various stages of labour. We also discuss things we can do to help facilitate this process, and you do not want to miss Angie's top tips. Angie's worked as a midwife in a variety of settings, including delivery suite and the birth centre, and is now practising in the community. She is a trained and registered health visitor and has completed her master's in professional development, with specialisms being maternal mental health, public health and birth following a caesarean section. Angie's academia does not stop there, however. She has gone on to teach midwifery students and has a number of publications in various journals. But Angie's real passion lies in facilitating physiological birth and empowering women with informed birth choices. She, this has led her to train in various complementary therapies such as aromatherapy, Swedish body massage, pregnancy massage, baby massage, hypnobirthing and volunteering as a breastfeeding support worker. To add to her impressive list, Angie also has one job bigger than all of that and that's being a mum to her 19-month-old daughter. Angie's little girl has a cow's milk protein allergy so she's developed a newfound interest in this area of research in which I'm sure we will see her name cropping up in no time. For those who haven't come across Angie on social media, she's also a cloth nappy library volunteer 
And so there are many cute nappy designs that feature on her Instagram page as a result. See the link in the episode description to check all of these out. So Angie is evidently one very busy and passionate woman. So I am thrilled that she's taking the time to chat to us today and to help us all understand the physiology of childbirth and to appreciate how incredible women's bodies are. So welcome, Angie, and thank you so much for coming on to chat about this super important part of of all pregnant women's journey, really. Hello, it's good to be here. Amazing. And I think we hear so many terms, don't we, kind of thrown around when it comes to childbirth, and we hear that term normal, and that can be sort of portrayed in so many different ways. So what do we mean by kind of, I guess, a physiological birth or, or a normal birth, if you like that term? Yeah, so physiological birth um, is probably a better term to use than normal, really. And that's purely because actually normal birth eliminates those that have anything other than a spontaneous birth through the vaginal canal with no intervention, no pain relief, no anything else. And actually, how do you define normal? You know, normal is very uh, unique to each individual woman and everyone has a different birth story that actually how do you pinpoint what normal is? And by saying the word normal, you kind of exclude everyone else who um, who doesn't have that really. And so physiological birth is probably a better term for birth in itself. And actually physiological birth encompasses so many different things. You know, it could encompass those that are spontaneous births. It can also encompass those that are induction of labours and everything else. But it's all about how the body works during labour and childbirth and actually what the systems are at play to be able to help us um, give birth in itself really. Um, and so actually like the RCM changed the language of, uh, in 2014, they changed it to physiological birth to be able to help include more women in this category. Um, and so actually their mental health does better as well if we describe it as physiological birth rather than normal birth uh, going forward. Um, but it, it just encompasses anything that is a vaginal birth really um, and trying to promote as much as we can to um, help with the physiological processes so helping with the hormones in labour helping actually provide um, an environment that's right for the body to go into labour going forward really um, and so yeah it, that's basically what the physiological birth means I love that. And I love the fact that we're using physiological rather than normal because they're, although normal sounds fairly harmless, I suppose on the contrary to that, you've got abnormal. So if you don't fit in this normal category, does that mean your birth fits in the abnormal category? And and no birth is abnormal, is it? All birth is, is birth, regardless of kind of how that might look for each individual. So physiological, it sounds a little bit fancy, but it, it's essentially what Andy just described. And I think sometimes we lose the kind of concept of our ancestors in that women are designed primarily for pregnancy and for childbirth. And as things have adapted over the years, and I'm very grateful for a lot of the um, changes in medicine, which has enabled women who potentially in the past may not have been able to even get pregnant, they now can, which is obviously absolutely fantastic. But I think along the way, we've kind of developed a little bit of a potentially over-medicalization and lost this concept a little bit. Do you kind of find that? Absolutely. And you've also got to look at um, how place of birth has changed massively. You know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, home births were the normal. You know, people didn't go into hospitals to have babies. I know the NHS had only just been invented really at that stage. 
but actually most women have babies at home and actually you look at the World Health Organization guidelines now and it shows how much longer a woman's labor is because of this transfer to hospital that we've designed and actually um, what the World Health Organization now recommends is that we don't start the onset of labor until a woman's five or six centimeters to be able to try and counteract that sort of early labor back and forth that most women will go through at some point. Um, and I know that's quite frustrating if you've got a long early labour and we haven't counted those hours and that, that is quite annoying as a woman who's been through labour and had a long early labour herself. But um, actually, we need to sort of uh, remember that our bodies were designed to give birth and that we've been doing it for decades. You know, the human race has survived thanks to, you know, physiological childbirth. Um, and it's only in the last, you know, 60 odd years plus that medical intervention has really come into play. Um, I mean, forceps were designed, you know, in, in the 80, late 1800s. So actually, we're only looking at 100 years with medical intervention where we've helped with some sort of instrument. And I mean, even cesarean sections, okay, they originally, you know, happened, what, three, four hundred years ago, but they were so few and far between. They were only done in, in the probably the richest, the wealthiest, and, and most of those women did die back then, whereas actually now cesarean birth is, is pretty, um, it's pretty common, if anything, you know, anywhere between 25 to 40 percent. So, um, and that's because of actually our medical interventions that have increased in our hospital births and, and lots of other factors interplay with that. It's not just, you know, um, people going to hospital have babies, but actually you've got our medical profile over time and that's changed slightly. Um, but actually a lot of fear has come into that. And because we come into labour and birth with almost this fear dynamic, actually what that does is, is it counteracts our natural physiological processes, our natural hormones, which then inhibit us being able to actually have a spontaneous physiological birth um, because our, our mind gets in the way of things. And we'll come to that probably a little bit later on as part of physiology. Yeah, and that's why I think this episode's super important, Angie, because like you say, talking about the fear in childbirth, and that seems to be a massive theme for all pregnant ladies, or even those that aren't pregnant, but think at some point that that they will become pregnant and have children. Fear is such a massive, massive, um, a, a massive emotion that these women's feel and I suppose what we really wanted to do through this episode is help women to understand what physiology is going on in their body in the hope that they will then feel empowered by what their body can do and that that will help reduce that fear and understanding why doing certain things may help support that kind of normal physiology and that normal process that that their body is is really capable of doing Absolutely. so I think it's probably useful for us to look at what happens in labour? So we hear of all these terms um, that are referred to as different things um, and changes that happen to our body. And I think it's it's well understood that there's massive physiological change that happens. But can you kind of talk us through what what that is and what's really going on inside, I suppose? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when uh, a woman is ready to go into birth, and it's usually anywhere between about 37 to 42 weeks on average, so that tends to be the average um, time that a woman goes into labor. But a baby will release hormones, we think, from its lungs, which then trigger the body to actually start stimulating that labor process. And if you've got a baby in a good position on the cervix, what happens is actually those hormones that are released by the baby's lungs to say, we're ready, we're ready to be born, this is it, time to you know, let everything happen, um, basically sends a signal up to your brain to release oxytocin. 
So oxytocin is our natural hormone within labour and birth, um, and it's what is used uh, during sexual intercourse for orgasms and things. And I'll come back to uh, orgasms and how oxytocin works in other ways so that we can um, try and mimic those um, uh, sort of uh, physical feelings to help promote it within our body but oxytocin then gets down to our uterus and it helps our uterus to contract so by contracting it sends away from the top of the uterus down towards the cervix and what it does is it draws up the longitudinal muscles so the top to bottom all of our muscles in our body work in pairs you know you look at your biceps and your triceps they work together um, and your uterus works together but you have your longitudinal muscles that draw up and thin out and efface and move the cervix in different ways and push that baby more into the cervix as well during the first stage of labor by doing that it's opening up the cervix in that first stage of labor and each contraction you have sends another signal back up through your um through your nervous system to actually release endorphins so our natural pain relieving mechanisms um during childbirth and that allows us to um, decrease the level of discomfort that we feel during childbirth as a result that signal that's gone back up to our brain tells our body to release more oxytocin the more oxytocin is produced the more contractions that we have the more the dilation happens, the more that our baby's pushed onto our cervix, the more the feedback loop continues really going forward. So oxytocin is a huge thing at, at, um, during childbirth. But the thing is, is oxytocin only works when we're feeling very comfortable and when we're happy. Um, and actually, it's not too dissimilar from having sex. Actually, if you think we don't, as humans, go outside in the middle of the street in front of strangers and have sex in front of everybody, it doesn't work than that. And that's the same for labour and birth. You know, labour and birth isn't meant to be something that you watch time and time again. Um, and actually going into hospitals and going to units that you don't necessarily know the midwives, you've got new faces, you've got bright lights. You know, we can't relax as much in those terms. And that's where we're actually trying to bring lots of um, sort of relaxation techniques and other things that are going to help decrease the level of stress really helps. Um, and oxytocin is, is released by our parasympathetic nervous system. So our parasympathetic nervous system works the best when we are calm and when we're relaxed and when we're happy, basically. Um, and one of the things that can inhibit oxytocin release is our, paras uh, is our synthetic nervous system. So um, our sympathetic nervous system is the one that um, makes us feel anxious, depressed, stressed, worried. Um, and actually, that's where our adrenaline and cortisol are released. So if you go into labour and childbirth feeling stressed and nervous and anxious and fearful about things, what you do is you release more adrenaline. When you release more adrenaline, you release more cortisol. And what that does is actually diverts the blood away from your uterus. Um, and by diverting the blood away from the uterus, your baby gets less oxygen. Okay, so that's sometimes one of the factors behind fetal distress um, uh, is actually the increase of cortisol within pregnancy. It's not necessarily during labour and birth, but during pregnancy. Um, and I can come to the research on that a bit later on. But um, what cortisol and adrenaline do is they block oxytocin, so they stop it from working. And if you can't allow oxytocin to work, then you don't have contractions. And if you don't have contractions, you don't go into labour, so you're more likely to be induced. And the other thing is actually it can stop labour from happening in general. So this is often where we more go into um, maybe a hospital or a midwife-led unit or have a midwife come out to assess you if you're at home birth. And suddenly what happens is your fear and your worry starts and it kicks in and you go, oh my word, what is happening here? Your adrenaline kicks in and suddenly your contractions, they just fizzle out and they stop and they space out. Um, and it might have been that they were happening a lot more at home and that's perfectly normal. It's just because actually you've come into a place with new faces, new environment, new smells, lots of different senses that suddenly your body's gone into shutdown almost. 
And that's because actually the, the adrenaline and cortisol have shoved all the blood to your heart and your lungs. So it's increased your heart rate, it's increased your breathing rate. And actually it's diverted uh, the blood away from the uterus that was contracting in the first place. So it's really important that wherever you can do um, during labour and birth, and even at the end of your pregnancy, is to try and remain as comfortable and as relaxed as you possibly can do. So that actually you allow the natural hormones to take, um, take effect really, and so that you're more likely to have that physiological birth process going forward. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When we're scared or frightened, our bodies will trigger this um, innate fight or flight response, which is essentially what it's doing in labour. And I know we hear this all the time. I work on a delivery suite, so women will, will come into um, come in to see us from home, and they'll always say, "Oh, and I was contracting really, really regularly at home, and since I've got here, I've not had any." And they become really concerned as to, as to what's going on. And that's exactly what you just described, isn't it? It's that you're in your nice, nice, comfortable bubble, and now you've come into a strange environment, and your body's kind of changed changed where its blood's going to so your body's getting ready to run away somewhere safe rather than go into labor and birth your baby absolutely and actually it's, it's remembering that everything that we do during our pregnancy can have that impact on, on our labor and birth as well and there, there was some research that was done on women who had um underlying untreated depression and anxiety so quite high level those that never had the medication they compared it to the ones that were treated and the women who um, didn't actually manage with those anxieties and, and low mood and everything else, they had CTG changes. So CTG is a monitoring device that we use sometimes in delivery suites. Um, and it monitors the baby's heart rate and it also monitors contractions during labour and birth. But they found that there were actually fetal heart changes from the women who had long-term um, depression and anxiety who never had treatment. So we're not talking about those that you know are treated or anything on those lines. They had more changes to the baby's um, fetal heart rates than those who had treatment during, um, during their pregnancy, really. And it really highlights that actually, yes, we can have stress. Yes, we can have things, but it's how we manage it during our pregnancy that has the impact. Um, on sort of our, our labour and birth process as well and, and we look at the rates of fetal distress which is a term that we use sometimes within delivery suites and actually they've increased over the years and, and we've had a lot more intervention going on and is that because actually we've got lots more stress going on in our modern day-to-day -day life and we're just not managing it as effectively as what we used to do um, it'll be interesting come December when we've got all these babies who have gone through a pandemic actually actually are we going to have an increase again in cesarean births and forceps and inductions because of the long-term chronic stress that lots of women have sadly been put under through this pandemic or we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that one yeah definitely that's really interesting isn't it given the current the current situation and what's going on because I I mean, I don't want to generalise, but I suspect there's probably not very many pregnant ladies um, who aren't feeling some degree of heightened anxiety or stress because of the current situation and just the unknowns of what COVID means and what, what's going on in the world and what and what normal might start to look like in our lives for the future. There's just, there's no answers, is there? And that's bound to bring some degree of kind of stress and uncertainty because we, we like answers and we like plans and we have got neither of those things with COVID at the moment, sadly. Absolutely. <laughs> it will be, it's an interesting time to live through, think and there'll be lots of research coming out over the next 10-15 years the long-term impact of this as well so you know it's not just short term that we're looking at here it's, it's the longer term side of things for both mums and, and babies and even dads as well so um, it will be an interesting um, lot of research coming up with that but yeah 
Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of changes that do happen to the body. So the cervix is one of those big things, actually. So the cervix is um, something that changes massively. So when you're not in labour, your cervix starts really far back behind the baby's head. It's really long. It's really hard. It's really rigid, um, and it's usually closed. And especially in a first labour, for example, um, you wouldn't be able to put anything through the cervix necessarily. That's bigger than sort of a, a pinprick, really. Whereas if it was your second or third or fourth plus baby sometimes the cervix never fully closes but um it will still go back behind the baby's head and it will still be quite rigid and hard and everything else but as i was saying at the start of uh, sort of physiology parts that actually the hormones um react to the longitudinal muscles within the um, uterus and it helps to draw up the cervix so that's why it comes forward and that's why it softens up so it goes from hard to like the ridge of your nose outside of labor to really soft like the inside of your cheek so it really softens up during um, during labour and childbirth. And then what it does is as it starts to thin out, it goes from about three centimetres long to the paper thin, like a piece of paper, basically. That's how thin a cervix becomes as it goes through labour. But then it starts to dilate. Um, and that dilation is what actually allows your baby's head to come through that pelvis of yours. Um, it's what's made uh, your baby stay inside the uterus for hopefully the nine months of pregnancy so it's held your baby up which is the amazing thing um, and usually within that cervix there's also a mucus plug as well what that mucus plug has done is protect your baby against infection as well um, and it's a big sort of gloopy bit of what looks like snot it can sometimes be bloodstained. Some women have loads of it. Other women have absolutely none at all. Um, but often as those cervical changes happen, actually that mucus plug comes away. Um, and often that's a sign that things are starting to happen, uh, signs that labour is um, beginning to go forward as well. And also a sign that maybe you're hitting sort of the end stages of labour as well, because a lot of midwives will notice that women will have quite a heavy show just as they're heading toward that last bit of labour and childbirth really. Um, but there's also lots of other changes that have happened within the body during pregnancy as well. So progesterone um, it starts increasing right from the moment you become pregnant. It's what helps maintain the pregnancy until the placenta takes over at about 12 to 16 weeks. And actually that progesterone is the hormone that makes us feel really rubbish, really grotty, tired, knackered, um, makes us feel really sick, causes us to be sick a lot of the time in early pregnancy. But as the pregnancy goes on, the progesterone levels continue rising. Um, but um, as part of that, actually our, our bones and our ligaments will soften up. And by softening up our pelvis slightly, um, what that does is allow our baby's head to come through the pelvis a little bit um, easier through childbirth as well and be able to do that corkscrew manoeuvre that babies do throughout the um, birthing process. Um, but the, the um, progesterone itself is what helps um, allow our pelvis to be able to birth the babies that we grow with inside us. What that progesterone also does as well is it actually prepares us for the afterbirth as well. So progesterone, the whole reason why it makes us feel so sick and rubbish in early pregnancy is because it drops our blood pressure through the floor by opening our veins and our vessels and our, our blood vessels. But as you go through those nine months of pregnancy, what happens is the blood volume increases. Um, so that increases our blood pressure as we head towards the nine months. But we gain about an extra 500 mils of blood volume overall within the whole pregnancy. And that's basically there to protect us from once the placenta is delivered and, and is birthed itself. Actually, that blood loss that we have is counteracted by the blood that we gained during pregnancy as well. So there's a lot of changes that have happened throughout the whole of pregnancy to prepare us physiologically um, to be able to birth our babies um, going forward, really. So clever, aren't we? We are. The we are just so clever. 
it's totally amazing like I, I genuinely feel like we should be celebrated so much more as females um I'm all for feminism and everything else and that we're equal left right and center but there is just something unique and amazing about the, the female body yeah for sure like when when you just hear hear about kind of what your body's done for nine months in preparation for this one amazing event it's incredible we definitely we definitely should celebrate ourselves more and that's why we shouldn't be fearful of going through this process because our bodies have been preparing for it and our our baby's working kind of in harmony with our body and kind of for this process so we we have obviously the changes to our cervix that we talked about and we have this kind of I guess this focus and fascination on numbers when it comes to our cervix which I know as midwives Angie sometimes we find quite frustrating don't we because we understand all the other things that are going on but for women who aren't understanding all the other changes the cervix is making all they can hear is this number your two or three or five what what does that mean and what should we really be thinking of when we look at kind of the changes the cervix is making and 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 I guess relating that to progress throughout labour yeah, so it, it totally, I mean, a vagina examination is something we recommend as midwives in NHS settings and probably in the Western world, if I'm totally honest, most of us um, within the Western medicine world will suggest examinations during labour. And vagina examinations is something that we really focus on. So a vagina examination of VE, it might otherwise be known as during labour and birth, is where we insert a couple of fingers digitally into the vaginal passage, find the cervix and see what's going on with it as midwives. Um, and most units within the UK will recommend about four hourly examinations when you're in active labour, so from the point of about four to six centimetres onwards, depending on where you're giving birth um, and what the guidelines are. But vagina examinations only tell us a snapshot. They are literally like a picture in time. They don't tell us where you're going to be in two hours. They don't tell us where you're going to be in 10 minutes. They don't tell us where you're going to be the next day. They just literally give us a picture as an idea as to where you are right at that moment in time. Um, And it provides sort of a bigger clinical picture, really. Actually, what else is going on with you? You know, Um, again, what's the what's your mindset like? Where are you having your baby? What support have you got? Are you calm and comfortable? Are you having an induction? You know, it goes with that bigger, wider picture going forward. And actually, women sometimes can be five or six centimetres, you know, women, especially those that have had babies before, they could be five or six centimetres for three, four, five days, they could have had a stretch and sweep and internal examination to try and stimulate labour in the community. But because they haven't got contractions, nothing's happening, you know, they, they could be like that for quite some time. And actually, it's the contractions that really are the driving force behind things. You know, it's our fuel in our engines, in our cars, pretty much. You know, without the fuel, you don't move your car anywhere. And it's exactly the same with the uterus. Actually, if you've got the contractions, the chances are progress is going to continue for you. So that's why we really need to focus on how to um, improve our oxytocin levels, how to promote that, that physiological birth process, so that that way our uterus can work effectively going forward and so that we have those contractions. And for a lot of women, what will happen is when they start labour, especially in first babies more than anything else, is that actually contractions will be spread apart. Um, And that's where the uterus is starting to build up bit by bit. So often with first babies, it will be sort of every half an hour, then every 20 minutes, then 10. And over the course of a, a, a few hours or a few days or even a few weeks, essentially what will happen is those contractions will get closer and closer together and instead of being 10 seconds long they'll head towards more like a minute long so actually they build in strength they build in frequency and they're building length going forward 
Um, and then actually, when you hit active labor, so that's the point of where, um, like I said, four to six centimeters is sort of an arbitrary number, but that's a number that we sort of pluck out of thin air pretty much. But when we're heading into active labor, often contractions are about every three or four minutes, give or take, and they last a minute long, um, and they're all very strong as well. So the difference between that and say Braxton Hicks is that Braxton Hicks, you can feel them, and you're like, oh, what's this? What's that happening? You can feel the tightening. Sometimes they can take your breath away slightly, but actually you can still talk through them in everything else. Whereas actually in active labor, you tend to have to really focus on what the contraction is doing to your body. You have to really be in the zone and you can't focus on anything that's happening around you because you're just so focused on making it through that, that one minute of a contraction really. And that's the difference I think between active labor and sort of those early labor stages. Now, of course that is a generalization and there are lots of women who birth in very different ways. You know, we have first time moms who walk in having only been contracting for half an hour and they've come very, very quickly on. You know, they've been running down the motorway at 100 miles an hour. They've got rocket fuel in their car, basically. It's the only way to describe them. And instead of having that gradual build-up sometimes, actually what they do is they come in, they have a very quick labour, but it's happened every two minutes from the outset, all lasting a minute long, all really strong, all taking their breath away. So, um, and we don't know the reason why um, sometimes one woman has a really quick rapid labour and another one doesn't, you know. we we have the least funded area of all of medical research going as women. So, you know, medical research into women's health has probably only been happening for about 30 years and probably the most amount of funding only in the last 10, um, if I'm being totally honest with you. There is more still research and more money plowed into erectile dysfunction drugs and Viagra year on year than there has ever been plowed into women's health overall. And actually we still have quite a lot of unknown things about birth as to why some women have very rapid quick labours and why some take their time. We know some of the ins and outs, like I said, about the fear and stuff, there are some things within our control that we can help. But there is still some unknowns about um, the differences between women's birth experiences going forward. And that's something that hopefully in the next 10, 15 years, because research is increasing, we might have an answer to those things and might then help women better and in, and in easier ways as well. Yeah, definitely. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? We deserve it. <laughs> absolutely and the other thing I think Andy that women always may maybe worry about and we kind of alluded to there is how long does labor take and I always try and compare it to a journey between your house and the airport because you never know how long it's going to take (laughs) you might have to stop for food for fuel for a wee there might be traffic or you might just fly straight there but what you always know is that when you get there there's something awesome at the other end so whether that's your holiday or giving birth to your baby it's going to be fantastic and but women do always say to us oh but how long do you think it will be or how long until this happens and we just don't know do we if only we did um but we just don't because every woman is so so individual and this is it I mean as much as we're all midwives and we see normality every day every woman is so unique and we don't have this crystal ball to be able to you know determine how long a labour is going to be for one woman compared to the next you know if we had crystal balls we'd all be lottery winners quite honestly if that was the case 
But actually what we tend to do is make educated guesses some of the time for some women. And some women you just get a feeling that things are going to go really quickly or you get a feeling that things aren't going to go quite so quickly. It's kind of that instinct that you get with experience going forward. And even then, I mean, half the time we can be wrong. <laughs> and actually there is no set sort of scientific evidence for that. It's an art to midwifery. So actually there's lots of different things and we'll have different perceptions and things rather than a science for midwifery side of things. But on average, a first-time mum in active labour, so from that four to six centimetre stage, will be in labour anywhere between about eight to about 18 hours, give or take. So, and every woman is slightly different in those terms, but we, what we recommend is usually about half a centimetre of progress per hour on average from um, physiological birth processes. So from spontaneous birth, induction often takes slightly longer um, and that's because of the induction drugs in itself, but um, that's a whole other um, conversation in itself really. Second time mums, anywhere usually between about five to 12 hours on average from that active labour stage and sometimes a lot quicker as well. Second babies, um, more often than not, are the ones that are the quickest and actually lots of women with second babies find that their waters just suddenly go and they're suddenly like I said racing down the motorway 100 miles an hour with their rocket floor you know they are the ones that sometimes get caught out and have babies on the side of the road or at home or um, other things and they are our most common ones are birth before arrival so the babies that are born who were aiming to go into a hospital going to a midwife led unit who had a baby elsewhere instead um, and that's, I think, just because sometimes our service has got that muscle memory where actually it just goes, oh, do you know what, we've done this once before, so let's just get cracking. Why hang around like we did first time around? Let's just get on with this. And you often find that women with shorter intervals as well, um, and there is a little bit of research behind this, so shorter birth intervals between their first baby and their second baby, they're the ones with the quicker births. Um, and it is almost like that muscle memory. So you tend to find that the women who've maybe only had a year, maybe two tops between their babies are the ones that deliver and have, have their babies born the quickest, as opposed to those that have maybe said had five to 10 years gap between their babies. And it's almost like your um, cervix has kind of forgotten slightly when you've had a really long gap between babies um, going forward. Um, but yeah, so on um, average, that's sort of your first and second stage of labor uh, combined but we break down the um, stages of labour as well um, for all women as well so you have this latent phase which is sort of that naught to like I said four to six centimetres and that latent phase is where the contractions tend to be irregular, spaced out, um, they're not quite a minute long, they might be uncomfortable but they're not all really having to focus on them and then you head into the active first stage of labour and this is somewhere between about that four to six centimetres all the way up to about seven to nine-ish centimetres for most women. And that's where actually the contractions are just happening one after the other, after the other, every three-ish minutes, all lasting a minute long, all really strong, really regular in pattern, regular in length, regular in strength. And it's all about dilation at that stage. So it's all about those numbers um, between that stage and also about your baby's head getting into a really good position for labour and childbirth. Then you hit that sort of seven to 10 centimeter stage, and that's what we call transition. So this is where actually the hormones are starting to change slightly. As I said right at the start, we actually have our uterus working in, in a pair of muscles like the rest of our body in, in terms of you know our biceps and triceps working together, but our uterus is working in those terms as well. So as we're hitting transition, our uterus muscles are starting to change over slightly. 
So our longitudinal muscles that have been contracting all this way throughout the whole of labour, they're actually starting to transition to the horizontal muscles, the ones that go across our body, are starting to take over going forward. And what tends to happen in transition for most women is they start to feel like, oh my word, I cannot do this anymore. I've hit my brick wall. I want my epidural. I want to go home. Do you know what? I don't want a baby. I've been growing this baby for nine months, but I've changed my mind. No, thank you very much. This is too much hard work basically going forward. Um, and actually that transition stage is where our adrenaline does start to kick in. And this is often where women feel slightly out of control within their labor and childbirth. And this is where things like the relaxations and having really good support and knowing your midwife wherever possible, this is where actually that can really help to calm those anxieties and adrenaline. But you tend to find that the contraction space out slightly at that end stage, you often feel quite tired. You actually manage to have a bit of a nap in between contractions as well. Um, it's not uncommon and it's almost like your body is preparing you for that last push basically and it's that calm before the storm that transition stage and it is it's often where women just feel like do you know what it's just too much at this stage I've been doing this for hours do you know what let's just stop this let's come back tomorrow and let's start again when I can have a proper break um, but it is where that adrenaline is starting to kick in slightly and what that adrenaline is meant to do right at that end stage is so that you have got that energy to push your baby out right at the end then you hit fully dilated. So fully dilated is where we can't fill any cervix left. We estimate that it's about 10 centimetres, but it's essentially when we can't fill any cervix left around that baby's head. And where actually the transitioning of the body has taken place. So now the horizontal muscles of the uterus are now working to be able to move the baby through the pelvis and push the baby down. And if you ever watch a woman going through labour and childbirth, you'll notice that her uterus almost does like a Mexican wave down the bump as she hits that pushing stage, which is just incredible to watch. And actually a woman doesn't have to physically push to birth her baby. You just see the uterus taking over and doing its own thing. And a woman will say, I'm pushing, I'm, I can't help it, I can't stop. And that's because actually the body's taken over and, and the muscles have transferred over to the horizontal muscles working and the longitudinal muscles resting at that stage. And there are lots of signs that we see during the pushing stage in women's uh, sort of labour and childbirth. And we can see a purple line often happening um, up her bum crack. Um, and that's because actually all that pressure from that baby's head is coming through the pelvis, which is amazing. And we see um, sort of a triangle happening as well with the perineum and the pressure on the bottom happening as well. And you can often see the pelvic floor opening slightly as well, long before the baby's head gets here. And it's something that women often ask us time and time again, can you see anything yet? Can you see the head? Can you see anything happening and it's always like actually your baby's head is literally the last thing I'm going to see I can see so much more happening first I can see the labia moving I can see you know the bottom opening up slightly I can see all these other wonderful signs that happen during childbirth you know pooing being one of them um, there is something about midwives that we love poo quite frankly because it usually means that baby's pushing so hard on it your bowels have emptied and great you're about to have a baby which is fab um yeah so we that's that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because women always worry about poo and labour, but actually, if there's anything in the rectum and your baby's putting all that pressure, there's not much else. There's not much room for anything else in your pelvis other than your baby at that stage. If there's anything in there, it's going to come out, and that's just part of our normal physiology. And quite often, women and birth partners don't even know it's happened. We're very discreet, aren't we? And and like you say, we don't care. We're just like, great, we're going to have a baby. Fantastic. Absolutely, and it's an amazing thing. 
we're all in poos because you're just like do you know what that rainbow is there you know we're about to have a baby you know you're about to become a mother so actually and, and that's something that can inhibit women from pushing actually is that fear and that worry that they're going to poo in front of their partners and things and actually I've seen it uh, quite a few times as a midwife where a woman has refused to push because she's so fearful of that poo um, I mean there are ways around that from getting them sat on the toilet to other things so that they feel a bit more um sort of secure and safe I guess is probably the right way to have that poo in privacy but yeah it's, it's amazing actually just how um how much pressure the the baby puts on but it just means that you're about to have a baby which is incredible and as that baby's head comes down it does just a slight corkscrew at that very end part and in an ideal world as long as physiological birth goes the way it should do and most babies will come out so that their um, face is facing the bottom um, and that's what we call an occiput anterior so the back of the baby's head is at the front of uh, the mum's pelvis basically um, and so their face is coming out with uh, next to the mum's bottom basically and that's just because it's in an easier position to push the baby out and it's a much smaller diameter um, and then what will happen is as that head births um, something called crowning happens and crowning is probably the most discomfort a woman will probably feel throughout her entire childbirth and it's often again one of those things that most women will be nervous and anxious about that sort of burning ring of fire is what it's often described as but actually it lasts for maybe 10 minutes, 15, 20 tops. It's a very short amount of time in comparison to the rest of labour and childbirth. And some women don't feel it at all, actually. Um, it's one of the benefits of perineal massage, actually, is that actually if you stretch everything ahead of time, sometimes it can reduce the level of discomfort a woman feels. Um, but it's very, very short amount of time. And actually it's really worth at that stage to try and slow that birth process down because by slowing that baby's head to be born actually that decreases the chance of stitches decreases the need for any perineal tearing afterwards as well so whilst your urge is to push through it and just to get that baby out actually that's the time to really just focus on every breathing focusing on your partner you know eye contact with whoever's in the room with you um, so that, that way you can really distract yourself from what's happening at that stage and what, what happens is the baby's head births so the baby's head is out and then um, what will happen is you'll wait for your next contraction to come along and your baby will do a little bit of a rotation. So the shoulders are moving. Um, and that's, again, that corkscrew through the pelvis. And it's just because of the way that our pelvis and the baby is designed to give birth. Um, and then as that baby rotates, you'll then get another urge to push and out will come the baby skin to skin in your arms with the cool pulsating still, which is amazing. And that's it, that's the moment that you become a parent, whether it's for the first time or 10th time, that birth of the baby coming through is, is you meeting your baby again for the first, you know, for that first time for that baby, which is incredible. So it's amazing what the human body and what the female body does and how babies actually move throughout the pelvis and everything else. Because the other thing you've got to think about is a baby's head shape actually changes during childbirth as well. So baby's heads are meant to overlap and mould and um, and have some squashiness to them. Um, something called caput, which is almost like a swelling of the back of the baby's head. And it's perfectly normal. And if you take a photo of your baby when they're first born and compare it to 24 hours later, you'll notice a massive change within the baby itself. And that's because actually our babies are designed to um, squash the, the skull plates of their heads so they fit through the pelvis a lot easier and with a lot more comfort to women. And then of course they go back to normal and then it takes about two years to get rid of those soft spots on the top of the baby's head. And actually what it also does is enables that baby's head to grow over the next two years to sort of more of an, a normal um, top of shape really in size. 
And it's quite nice to think of the, the changes that's going on, I guess, with your baby during that labour process, because I think it makes women realise that actually it's, it's a beautiful partnership, isn't it? You're not doing it on your own. Your baby is making the, some of these changes with you. And just going back, Andrew, and we talked about that, that kind of crowning process. So we're really at the end. We can not only just see your baby's head, but your baby's head is really advancing and, and getting ready to be born completely. And I think one of two things tends to happen at that stage. And that's either, like we said, it's it's overwhelmingly stingy and burny and you just want to do one humongous push to get it over with, or that kind of fear sensation in that women hold it back and they their, their fear takes over and they can't push or breathe their heads out. And they almost want to clench their legs together and hold the baby in to stop that sensation. And I think that's where having that understanding of what's going on and what stage you're in, in your birth journey is really useful for recognizing that actually this is okay and this is normal. And you just need to keep going with that breathing and let your body kind of do the rest at that stage. And having a really a really great support network in the room with you and a good relationship or trust with whoever that is that's helping you birth your baby, be it a midwife or an obstetrician, at that stage is really, really beneficial as well, isn't it? So that you kind of you kind of do that together. We talk you through that. It's not kind of, we don't expect ladies to understand that's what's going on at that moment because your head is far too busy in getting through each contraction. We'll be explaining that to you. But it's nice to have that understanding before you hit that point as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you did a, a good um, Instagram post actually about the pelvic floor and about how tight or how relaxed it is. And actually, that's the part of labor that you really want your pelvic floor as relaxed as you possibly can do. You know, you want to think down, you, want, you think your baby's moving out and you want to be able to relax the pelvic floor as if you were going for a big wee. That's the only way to describe pushing is actually, you know, when you're desperate for a wee and you sit on the toilet and you open everything up. Actually, that's what you want from your pelvic floor. What you don't want to be doing is squeezing and tightening your pelvic floor at that stage. And that usually is through fear more than anything else. That is usually through, oh, my word, we're about to become parents and now the fear is really kicking in. So actually you want to feel like your pelvic floor is as relaxed as you possibly can do as opposed to, you know, tensing it upwards because you do want to think out rather than in at that stage. Yeah, definitely. And then when we spoke about um, pushing, so we are fully dilated and your body is sometimes involuntary pushing. So you're not doing anything. Your body is just pushing your baby out and you can't stop it and, and nor would you want to. And for some women that just happens spontaneously. But for other ladies, they'll they'll reach that fully dilated stage of their labor or the second stage as we like to call it, but they don't have that kind of overwhelming um, involuntary urge yet, do they? No, and that can sometimes, again, be fear kicking in. So fear is probably one of the biggest ones um, in that holding the baby back. But sometimes it can be baby's position as well. Actually, if you haven't got good, even pressure within the pelvis, sometimes it's more challenging for women to sort of birth their babies. And so in an ideal world, from the moment that you are um, fully dilated, um, if we're talking sort of hospital procedures and policies here, if you've been examined and you're fully dilated, what most places will do is give you about an hour possibly more depending on where you are what pain relief you've got on board um, of involuntary descent and what that involuntary hour should do is hopefully bring that baby down by keeping you upright and mobile trying to get you in some you know weird and wonderful positions hanging off the ceiling if we have to you know anything that will help encourage that baby down squats are a really good point at that stage really and hopefully by giving you that hour that baby should hopefully corkscrew a little bit more and you should feel more pressure within the pelvis 
And with any luck, that baby's positioning rectifying slightly, that should enable you to start feeling, actually, my body is going to take over and we're going to start that involuntary process going forward. And for a lot of women, that sort of hour, or even not even being diagnosed as fully dilated, but their body taking over, for most women, they will feel that urge to push. And there's lots of women who, you know, come into labour and childbirth thinking, well, how will I know when to push? And, and you just know, it just takes over your body. There is, it's like as easy as pooing or weeing. It just is an involuntary push process that just completely overtakes your body and, and you can't stop it. Um, and lots of women will say, I can't stop myself from pushing. It's like, well, no, you're not meant to. You're meant to continue doing this. You know, this is your uterus doing this for you, really. Um, but yeah, so for most women, you know, involuntary pushing is probably all that's needed. Now, there are lots of times that an active pushing stage is required and, and often with epidurals on board, um, that's often where things will need to be um, facilitated more. So active um, pushing is where often we will encourage women to push with their bodies and with their contractions. So, you know, um, it's often where we'll head towards sort of, um, uh, sort of purple pushing is what it's often known as as well, is where we take a deep breath in, chin, chest and push downwards. And there's always a time and a place for that. You know, there isn't, um, a, a, in an ideal world, every woman would have an involuntary push. Every woman would follow their body. Every woman would bring their baby down into the world. But if there's concerns for baby's heart rate and we're trying to speed up the birth, if there's an epidural on board, if there's any other concerns with mum or baby where we think actually we just need to speed up this pushing stage because the first time mums it can last two to three hours on average, in you know second time mums it can last between an hour or two potentially. And actually, if we need to speed up that process, then often that's where we'll get women doing that whole chin in your chest, take a deep breath in and push your baby out with your contractions, similar to what you would see on something like One Born Every Minute or sort of TV shows or, you know, American ones. That shouldn't be our sort of first go-to for most women. That should be our second line measure, um, you know, before we think about other interventions going forward. But it does have a place for the maternity services. And actually, we know that it does work for some women going forward. And especially if we've given them an hour, you know, to allow that baby to rotate, to do everything else. Actually, at some point, we do need to intervene so that we help with the pelvic floor and the pelvic floor recovery, but also so that babies are actually born as well. You know, you don't want to be pregnant for four or five days at fully dilated. It's no good for you and all your baby. You know, you're not going to be able to manage with the sheer exhaustion of that. So there is a time and a place for the active pushing, but wherever possible, most people will do at least an hour of involuntary pushing, by which point you may have had your baby. You might be close to having your baby. And um, if not, then there's other things that midwives will help encourage you doing at that stage. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's useful for, for women to know, because I think that sometimes that's like you say, another fear when, how will I know sort of, sort of when to push. Um, and I guess we do tend to sometimes put time frames in some aspects of labor. And we kind of alluded to that there with, with the pushing stage. And I know that can sometimes be frustrating, but sort of two to three hours of being fully dilated and pushing is exhausting. And certainly in my experience, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, actually after kind of two to three hours, women are quite grateful for a little bit of support and help because it is hard work. And what we want to do is firstly, not, not cause longer term damage, things like your pelvic floor from all that pressure of your baby and pushing for an extended period of time. But it can lead to some complications for mums and babies if we kind of leave that for, for a real long time. So that kind of intervention is still just to support the physiological process. It's, it's not to kind of change what your body's already doing. It's just to support that process, isn't it? And just kind of, I guess, just speed it up a little bit, but it's still very much that physiological thing that your body was doing anyway. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's more like complementing it rather than anything else. And to try and get a, a spontaneous vaginal physiological birth out of you, really, wherever we can do, if you were that person who was taking those hours or a couple of hours to be able to birth your baby, it's much less common in second and third time, fourth plus mums, because um, the pelvic floor is a lot more relaxed second plus time around. And that's because actually it's a lot easier for the baby just to be birthed through the pelvis at that stage. Whereas first time around, the pelvic floor is quite tight and it is um, a lot more rigid. Um, and, and certainly for some women who do certain types of exercises, it can be more rigid than others as well. Um, and actually that's where sometimes active pushing can really help as well in trying to relax that pelvic floor where you can do. Um, one of the things that can really support women in having babies though, our jaws are really connected to our pelvic floor um, and there was a famous midwife in America called Ina May Gaskin who really focuses on the jaw being as relaxed as you possibly can do at that stage and what she says is she says have a floppy face and you'll have a floppy vagina going forward and so actually in that involuntary pushing stage you know actually during that hour or plus if the baby's coming down nicely and everything else trying to keep your jaw as loose as you possibly can do and something I always encourage women to do in their pregnancy just to test it out if you all just do a pelvic floor lift a moment, clench your jaw together, and what you'll notice is actually your pelvic floor lifts up just a little bit more, just by a smidge, and you realise that actually your jaw is really connected to your pelvis. And wherever we can do that involuntary passive stage, we should have a relaxed jaw wherever we can do. So really breathing through our mouth, trying not to tense our face, try not to tense our shoulders, try not to tense our and clench our jaw. So that actually we're trying to facilitate facilitate a relaxed pelvic floor so that we can birth our babies a lot easier and we're thinking out rather than in as well at that stage and it's one of the reasons why active pushing isn't recommended as a first line because actually if we're tensing the jaw actually what we're doing is we're kind of holding that baby upwards but there comes that point where actually we need to intervene really like you said for the long-term consequences and long-term outcomes there comes a line in the sand somewhere along the lines and actually that's where the medical sort of world sort of um comes through with the physiological itself um and tries to complement each other going forward really that's such a great tip with the jaw because I think we'll find even even outside I guess of pregnancy and childbirth if you are a bit anxious or you're concentrating on something slightly too much you do tense your jaw you tense your shoulders and your neck don't you like your whole your whole body's um posture I suppose changes so I love that and it's quite a nice way of refocusing isn't it just thinking right let's just think about something completely different what's what's my jaw up to and then thinking what's going on through your body I love that it's brilliant absolutely and we also think about like singers and stuff you know what does singers do to be able to warm up their voices and they'll move their mouths and their jaws around so it's not a bad thing that actually at the point of pushing stage actually maybe do a few ums and ahs and move your jaw around and sing a song or something just to be able to try and really help relax you and also decrease the adrenaline wherever you can do you know we really want to think oxytocin at that stage we want to think lots of contractions we want to think baby out so actually the more relaxed we can be the more likely this baby is to come into the world at that stage as well so when we look at, I guess, the physiological process, we've kind of described what's happening in terms of what your your uterus or your womb's doing and the changes your cervix is making and the, the kind of changes that your baby's making as it descends through your pelvis. What can we do, Angie, that kind of just, I guess, helps to support that process? We've talked a little bit about that, reducing that adrenaline and that fear factor, but I guess kind of some of the practical things that women can can think about and incorporate in their birth preferences prior to this point as well yeah so the first thing is mobility so you've got to think the pelvis and the baby's head 
the baby's head does that corkscrew maneuver. And the heaviest parts of your baby is the back of the head to the occiput and also the baby's spine. So if we can think upright, mobile, leaning forward, open pelvis, what that will do is help encourage our baby's head to the heaviest part, our baby's back to the front of our tummies, which is the optimum position for labour and birth. It doesn't mean to say that babies can't be born in other positions. Um, I had a back to that baby delivered uh, birth myself um, with no interventions, but it's harder work. It's hard work, it's isn't it? Labor, <laughs> yeah. Much harder work. But in an ideal world, a baby will come round to this back at the front of your tummy. And that's because a baby who is in an OA position, so occiput anterior, so back of the baby's head at the anterior part of the pelvis. What it will do is that's about a nine and a half centimetre round diameter. What that does is that actually creates even pressure on the cervix. By creating even pressure on the cervix during contractions, it creates even contractions, which means good pattern, good regularity, good strength, good length, and it basically helps with the physiology keeping going. And actually, if we can help encourage that baby at the end of pregnancy, so this isn't just during labour and birth. Don't get me wrong, babies can move during labour and birth. It's not a, you know, a set thing. But if you can, from about 34 weeks onwards from your pregnancies, not think, actually, I'm going to slide or do anything that's going to lean backwards. You're going to think upright, open um, pelvic movements, you know, over the back of a kitchen chair, sat on a birthing ball, going for walks in the park, anything along those lines. You're going to help really encourage that baby into a really good position for labour and birth. Um, and trying to avoid laying down wherever you can do. But as the baby comes through the pelvis, as it hits the pelvic floor, as it comes lower into the pelvis, that's where actually it can really do that manoeuvre. So where it turns into a really good position throughout labour and birth. And actually it's really important to think of all the active birth positions where we can do. So being on your hands and knees, squatting, using lots of you know different things within room so if you're in a hospital and you've got beds you know lifting the bed in the air and leaning over it so that you're leaning onto it you know doing squats next to the bed holding onto your birthing partner and sat on the toilet is an incredible place to have a baby and actually the amount of babies have had babies born on toilets because actually it also opens up the pelvic outlet so um the toilet is an amazing place to sit in during the pushing stage during that involuntary stage and there's a really good position that you can get, uh, I call it natural lithotomy. So it's, uh, lithotomy is where we traditionally look at um, sort of one born every minute where women are flat on their backs with their legs in the air. But you can do this and replicate it in an upright position without any pressure on coccyx. And you can do that just by putting a stool next to the toilet and just lifting the legs up slightly. They're resting on the stool or on the seats or whatever else. And what you're doing is you're really opening up that pelvic outlet. And there was a really good um, birth video that was released a couple of weeks ago on Instagram. It's actually sometimes by changing your legs in and out, actually what that does is actually change the um, pelvic outlets as well, the, um, uh, the spines on the pelvis as well. So actually trying to be as mobile as you possibly can do will really help the things go forward. And there's um, some really good um, resources called Spinning Babies as well. They are an Australian program um, and they are led by chiropractors and midwives to basically help facilitate women giving birth. And they do lots of different things, but they really focus on being upright and mobile and trying these different positions where we can do. Because again, if we can help encourage that baby into a good position, we can help encourage that pelvis to remain open and, and not tight and everything else actually you're more likely to have a physiological birth going forward and they've got so much on their website that you can go and have a look at it, it's an incredible place and they break it down into what position your baby's in either pre-pregnancy or during labor so there's lots of things that you can find and you can even find it you know if you were um, having a baby in a hospital and your midwife said oh your baby's ot so maybe sideways on slightly 
there are things that you can do to be able to help facilitate baby moving through. The stairs in hospitals, if you've got a hospital stairs, are a great way. Crab walking, there's so much that you can do to really help encourage a physiological birth wherever you can do. And the more upright, the better that will happen. But also you're gonna think actually by being upright, you've got more pressure on that cervix, you've got more gravity of that baby's head on the cervix, so you're more likely to have contractions continue wherever you can do. So mobility is a huge thing wherever you, you can be within labor and childbirth. Um, the next thing is hydration. So um, you've got to think the muscle is a uterus. It works with energy. It works when it's hydrated and when it's got sugar in it. Um, and that's really important. Lots of women during birth are sick um, because one of the sad side effects of oxytocin, sadly, is sickness and nausea. Um, so for some women, they can be quite sick throughout labour and childbirth. And certainly if that's you, it's worth, if you are in a hospital unit, is considering whether or not you'd like an anti-sickness injection, just so that you can keep something down. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with continuing being sick. It's just that if you become dehydrated, the uterus can't work as effectively because it relies on that sugar, it relies on the oxygen, it relies on um, sort of the nutrients you put into it. But um, things like Lucozaid, um, sort of drinks, the isotonic drinks, not the necessarily the fizzy ones because they can make you feel quite sick and gassy in labour. Um, but the sort of the clear fluid ones that have got good amounts of sugar and glucose and energy in. Glucose tablets are great. Sugary sweets, basically anything that's going to keep you, you know, um, really high on sort of that sugar level so that your uterus can work effectively is really good in labour and childbirth. And of course, in the early stages of labour, if you're not being sick or anything, then actually having little to eat and often. So whether that's a banana or a chocolate hobnob, for example, um, or anything on those lines, what that will do is give you the energy that you're going to need throughout childbirth, you know, and, you know, just think small little meals um, and sips of water or isotonic drinks. What that will do is help your uterus remain effective during childbirth. And that's quite a good um, a role for birth partners, isn't it? Because women in themselves, when they are uncomfortable or experiencing some pain, the last thing they're thinking about is getting their Lucozaid out or, or eating some sweets. So actually for birth partners, if you've got a sports bottle or a drink with a strawberry and then you can just keep offering it and that's like, that'll just, re- just remind the woman, oh yes, that's what I needed to do. I remember that was going to su- support my ability to have contractions. So it's always a, a top tip for birth partners is have the water bottle and the snacks to hand and keep offering them nice and regularly. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, that's a that is a way of really encouraging partners to be part of the process as well. And you're doing a huge thing by that because actually you're really supporting that woman's uterus working. So you're actually helping your baby be born by offering those snacks and offering the water little and often as well. So um, it's a great thing to really to keep um, in the back of your mind. And of course, you've got to think what goes in must come out. So um, one of the things that can inhibit contractions is actually feel full bladders basically so if you've got a really full bladder it's like a balloon that's pushing your baby up out of your pelvis and it can actually stop you from laboring as well so it actually can inhibit your contractions from working as well not only that but it can have long-term consequences if you have a really full bladder it's not been emptied in labor for again your um, uh, continence side of things so actually maintaining being able to weave postnatally and things so actually, as birthing partners, it's really important to encourage your partners to wee little and often as well. So every couple of hours, if you think, actually, you have been up for a wee, let's try that. You know, let's go and sit on the toilet. Let's close the door for five minutes, shut out the rest of the world, turn on the taps, 
you might find that you're not able to wean labor and that's not uncommon and that's because actually you have got baby's head sat in your pelvis and it puts a lot of pressure on your urethra um and actually sometimes a catheter might be required um you know if you are unable to wean for a very long time it might be advised just to make sure that your bladder is nice and empty to prevent those problems not only for your labor and birth but also for the long-term health of you and your pelvic floor going forward but as a birthing partner just every every two or three hours just say do you want to go and have a wee Let's go and see if we can have a wee if they haven't already gone up to have a wee themselves, of course. Um, and again, that's another great thing that birth partners can be involved with. Um, and then, of course, being at home in latent stage as well. So there's lots of things that you can do to be able to help with things moving along. So having as comfortable surroundings as possible, trying not to have lots of stressful things around you, you know. If your mum or dad or whoever you know is around at the time and you're going into labour might stress you out more, maybe just saying, you know, I'm gonna go back to bed for a few hours. Having people that you trust is really important at home during those early labour stages. And certainly if there's anything that's stressful in the background, that's gonna inhibit you from going into labour. And it's often why second or third time mums often start going into labour when babies and other children are in bed, actually. You tend to find that the bedtime suddenly happens you know that they're safe and well in their bed and suddenly as a second or third time mum, nine o'clock comes and oh look your contractions have suddenly started picking up and you can phone your childcare along really um, and that's because actually you've switched off that stress part and actually you've um you've relaxed a lot more going forward nice warm baths at home can really help and you can get onto your hands and knees in the bath in a lot of baths depending on how big it is or having a shower anything that's warmth um hot water bottles are great as well so again for any sort of back aches or pelvic aches um hot water bottles are great and if you can learn some massage techniques in um, during pregnancy for your partner massage has been shown to um delay pain relief for women um in canada um by up to a centimeter in first time mums which can be the difference between a couple of hours extra at home so that can be the difference between being at home and sent home again if you've gone into a unit maybe or it could be that you go in at exactly the right time you stay in the unit at that stage and what massage does is it actually interferes with the pain signals that go up through um, our nervous system. Um, it's not too dissimilar from a TENS machine as well. It's interfering with those pain nerve fibers and the, and the um, feedback mechanisms that happen with pain. Um, and by doing sort of massage, what it will also do is that touch and that warmth and that comfort will also promote oxytocin. So again, by promoting oxytocin, we promote more contractions going forward. So massage is a really good tool to be able to use. And if you know someone who's aromatherapy trained, who can do an individualized assessment on you and do a medical history assessment on you, then you can always use some aromatherapy there as well, which can, again, can help complement labor and birth during the early stages as well. Um, but it should always be someone who's trained within pregnancy and childbirth, um, because it's really important not to have too much of certain things. They are drugs underlying it all. Um, and of course, early sort of like latent phase, anything that will make you laugh, anything that will make you giggle, you know, stick on a friend's box set or a comedian, anything that's going to help promote the oxytocin and relaxation will really help. And if it's really early and your contractions are every half an hour, 20 minutes and it's 3 a.m., try and get as much sleep as you possibly can do so that you're more set up for the day. And of course, it's, if it's during the day, then absolutely go out for your walk to try and get things moving along wherever you can do. And that will help. Eating plenty as well at that stage, again, if you're not sick or really helping the latent phase of labor and childbirth. Um, and TENS machines are really useful. So it's worth looking into whether or not you can hire or buy TENS machines, um, because again, that can really help with the latent phase of labor.
I'm a big fan of putting a TENS machine on at home and baking your baby a birthday cake. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then not, hopefully after then you'll be ready to, uh, to go into uh, the hospital. Totally. I mean, it's what they used to recommend 20 years ago. They used to say anything that would distract you enough and baking a cake takes a couple of hours. I mean, you've got to wait for it to bake and everything else. And then you've got something to eat postnatally as well. So you've got, you know... It's a win. <laughs> exactly. It's perfect, isn't it? So it's not um, it's not a bad idea at all, funny enough, to bake yourself a cake or some goodies or some things that you can stick in the freezer for afterwards. <laughs> but the other thing you've also got to think about is the environment at home is actually a lot more... Um, complementary to actually going to labour and childbirth as well and actually anything that you think about that makes you feel secure at home can you take it with you going forward if you are choosing a midwife led unit or an obstetric unit for whatever reason and actually as much as hospitals increase your chances of interventions and increase your chance of interventional births actually what can you do to help promote the environment that you would have at home in a delivery suite environment so if you're going into a delivery suite can you move the bed out of the way so actually you turn it to one side so that it doesn't become the focal point um, if you are having monitoring or anything like that actually can you have wireless monitors so that, that way you're upright and mobile you can move around or if not can you move with the wires coming with you um, because actually the wires are quite long in some of the monitorings turn off the lights you know if you look at any mammal birth you know you look at um, cats or anything else like that what they will do is they will find the darkest quietest place to have a baby um, they won't be in the middle of anywhere else and actually that's something else that partners can get involved with you know when you get into a room turn down the lights turn them off um, you know you can always take plugins with you or anything like that that will just be that nice glow um, if you really wanted to um, and taking some music as well music has been um, shown in systematic reviews so in actual evidence-based reviews to actually improve women's uh, perception of their labour and childbirth, but also decrease the amount of pharmaceuticals, so um, uh, pain relief, things like gas and air, pethidone, epidurals. They've been shown to reduce the amount a woman actually needs during childbirth. And it's almost like, again, that distraction technique. If you're listening to music, you're focusing on the music, you're shutting the rest of the world out, and actually you can relax a lot easier as well. Um, and with music, we tend to, you know, if we're ever stressed in life or we're ever anxious or we're ever worried, if we stick music on and we sing at the top of our lungs, suddenly we feel a little bit better about whatever it was. You know, if we go out for a walk, we tend to stick our earphones in and we go out for a run or whatever. Our earphones go in and we suddenly feel a bit better about whatever it was that we were stressing about beforehand. So um, actually taking in a docking station or taking your headphones and shutting out the rest of the world can really make a big difference. And that's the same if you had any sort of emergency birth as well. Actually, why can't you keep an earphone in to keep yourself nice and relaxed if you're going to the theatre for whatever reason? And what that will do is decrease the amount of anxiety and cortisol that you've got running around your body at that stage because you're going to feel a bit more relaxed as well going forward. That's um, one of the things I love about music, Angie, is that it can be a continuum depend regardless of where you give birth so you may start your your birthing journey at home and you've got your music you might then come into a co-located birth center you can still have your music you can have your music on it on a high-risk delivery suite and you can take music into theater and women very commonly do take music into theater for that reason and actually even our anesthetic colleagues are fantastic at offering music so if you haven't got something with you and you think actually right now that would really help then use your voice because it's very easily facilitated um, and it can be really powerful absolutely and it's really individual as well with music you know I've had babies who have been born to you know cold play really nice chill music and then I had a woman who you would think actually I mean she didn't fit the profile of heavy rock music at all 
but it made her feel relaxed. I mean, it made me feel quite anxious as a midwife, just because it was, it, to me, it's that sort of hardcore session where you're like, crikey, now I, I feel quite stressed and, and anxious after this, but it relaxed her like anything. She had a baby within a few hours of getting to us. So, you know, individual music is actually very individual to each woman and, and have a playlist, you know, it's something else you can do during your pregnancy, during your maternity leave, you know, put together a playlist that you're going to be happy with. Um, because actually it's going to be your music on the day and you might think antenatally I want certain types of music and you get there on the day and you go I don't want to listen to that because I'm, I'm just done with that and that's fine you know you often find that with hypnobirthing actually is they'll listen to the tracks they'll be nice and calm and relaxed throughout their entire pregnancy the whole idea of the audios is not necessarily to listen to them in labour um, and most women tend not to want them in labour I just want to add but actually it's there as an option if you wanted to, if you just wanted to pop them in. And actually that's what makes you feel, you know, nice and calm. So it's good to have a selection of music as well so that you can skip through the tracks that you're maybe not feeling on the day um, going forward. Um, and again, it's just trying to reiterate our senses wherever we can do. So actually if you've got something that smells of home, maybe your own pillow, um, you know, hospitals smell very different to home. You know, they do smell very sterile. They do smell very hospitalised. For good reasons, we need we need to clean over the rooms, and actually, you don't want to go into a dirty room. So, if it smells slightly of bleach, it means it's clean and fresh and ready for you to use. Quite honestly, um, but actually, anything that's going to remind you of home will really help as well. So, taking in your pillow, maybe taking a body spray that actually just smells of comfort. You know, maybe you like your partner's aftershave or something, and actually, you can pack that going forward. And then, what you can do is just spray the room so that it just smells more like home for you so that you then again relax a bit more um, and what you'll often find women who um, choose things like hypnobirthing is actually they'll go in with an eye mask on so they make it nice and dark for them they pop their earphones in and they'll often have something on a handkerchief or something else that they can just smell and what that will do is actually if you're going into a unit to have a baby that just instantly brings home with you so that you're mimicking those environments no we can't change the whole environment for, for good reason you know we can't mimic your house environment completely but there are ways that you can bring it with you so that you're more likely to have a physiological birth um, within those environments if that's what you're choosing or advised to have going forward. Eye masks are amazing as well, aren't they, for that lighting? Because there are some circumstances with some of the, I guess, some of the little bumps in the birthing journey sometimes where bright lighting might be indicated. And they are few and far between. But for example, when you, if you have any stitches after childbirth, it's really important that we can see when we're putting them in. Um, yeah. It's not something you want to have done in the dark. But actually, if you've got an eye mask and you can put that on, especially if you've got some nice lavender spray or room spray that you can put on it as well, that can really help to keep your environment nice and stable even though we've had to interfere with the kind of lighting so eye masks are like a must pack I think for uh for birth bags absolutely especially if we have to stay postnatally for anything actually to be able to switch off anyone else you know staff coming and going or whatever else I mean um any sort of hospital room you ever stay or sleep in it's never fully dark like your own rooms at home you know there's always a crack of light someone you know coming through the door or whatever and actually eye masks are really useful potentially as well so yeah it's a total um safety to put into your birthing bag really and of course then there's asking questions so it's really important throughout your whole pregnancy and birthing journey to be able to help support physiological birth as well as to ask questions left front center and that starts from the moment you conceive so right from the moment you have you know this baby growing inside you or if you've gone through IVF or trying to conceive this is actually the start in the process to be able to ask all those questions. And the more knowledge you can gain during pregnancy, the better you're going to feel postnatally as well. And there's a little analogy that um, I do. It says e So firstly, is it an emergency? 
if it's an emergency, there probably isn't time to actually go through everything else. Although most emergencies, unless it's in category one, we need to go now, your baby needs to be delivered within half an hour. Um, actually, most emergencies, you can still discuss the rest of this going forward. So they are your few and far between. They only happen about two to five percent of births. So they're not very many that you really can't discuss the options with. And most of the decisions you will have during your pregnancy are decisions that you can go away, have an hour or two to yourself to think, and then come back and make the decision. It doesn't necessarily have to be done there and then on the day. And even but with also, those emergencies, isn't it? You can be asking questions as we're wheeling down a corridor or while we're putting some socks on you. It might be that someone's doing something, but that doesn't mean we can't multitask and answer your question. We're a well-oiled machine. We can, we can definitely still do questions. Absolutely. And in that way, actually, you're feeling a bit more in control of decision making because actually you're understanding why these things are happening and certainly if it is an emergency and you haven't had all your questions answered but you're happy with the decision that's being made and you've consented to that procedure because again you can decide not to consent to anything if you've got mental capacity you can say no to a cesarean section that's being advised for an emergency for example I have to say not I've never come across a woman who has decided no when their baby or them are at imminent risk um and actually you can decide whether to consent or not but after the emergency there's no reason why you can't sit down and go through everything if you've provided that consent for the procedure or whatever then afterwards you can have that debrief that discussion of what the benefits what the risks would be and everything else going forward but in any other circumstance the things to ask so what are the benefits to me and my baby of whatever it is whether it's being given gas and air whether it's having my baby in a hospital at home whether it's having an induction or not whether it's continuous monitoring or listening in you know what are the benefits to me personally you know looking at my full medical history looking at everything else what are the risks so what are the risks of this that you are um considering going forward what are the alternatives so are there any alternatives you know do we have to make that decision right now do we have five minutes do we have an hour and actually, the alternatives, are they something that I can go away and get on the NHS? Or is it something that I've got to source privately, um, etc.? What are my instincts saying? And this is something that we can't teach women. And instincts are so powerful. Um, and there was a study done last year on babies' movements, actually. And they compared uh, women who counted the kicks, so counted every movement and basically kept a diary. And they compared it with women who just solely focused on their instincts. And it's something that you really can't teach women to do. It's just something that you've just got to listen to your gut. And they found that the women who listened to their instincts were more likely to have a physiological birth with no induction. They were less likely to have a cesarean section. They were less likely to have a baby that was admitted to special care baby units. And they were also less likely to have a stillbirth compared to the ones that were counting the kicks. And it's fascinating because we, we focus so much on counting the kicks and that's because actually we've got, there isn't a science to instincts and we can't teach women to focus on their instincts. So we just tell them to count the kicks. But actually by counting the kicks, we almost over-medicalise things um, and we over-intervene. And actually, as a midwife, the women who have picked up the phone and gone, I just don't feel like there's something right. They are the ones I worry 10 times over than the ones who phone and say, oh, I'm not sure if my baby's moved or not today. I've been busy all day and I've been doing this, that and the other. Um, I'm not really sure. I haven't had a chance to think. You worry about the ones who phone up and go, there's just something I can't pinpoint. There's just something that's changed. And uh, the amount of women I've had that have come through the door with absolutely, you know, blinking raised blood pressure through the roof or whose baby actually on the monitors um, hasn't been so ideal going forward. 
And it was that woman's instinct that just told her, I just need to be somewhere with someone. And it makes a huge difference. So instincts are really powerful and you can trust them both ways. You know, trust them if they're telling you that everything's perfectly fine. And actually you don't fancy that induction today, you might consider it again tomorrow um, for whatever reason. All the instincts could be telling you, actually, I really need to seek medical help now. This is where I need to be. I just need to have my answer, my questions answered. I need to see someone face to face. I need to be checked over. You know, really focus on those instincts. And that really goes in line with labour and birth. Women will often just turn to you in labour and birth and go, this baby's not coming out. I know this baby's not coming out. I am ready to have help and I'm ready to have intervention. Um, and actually that is something that they will come to naturally long before we, we necessarily recommend it or because of guidelines or whatever else. And instincts are just massively powerful. The next part of brains is what if we did nothing? What if we were to do nothing? What are the benefits and risks of this um, going forward? And is there an alternative to doing nothing as well? And then S is just to smile because actually we as midwives and obstetricians don't go into labour and birth to set women up to fail or to cause them a bad experience or anything on those lines. We, uh, like I said, it's a science, so we don't always get it right. We don't always get it accurate. We take the best amount of research in the world. We then have to combine it with our guidelines, which aren't always up together. Um, and they take years to change and everything else. And a lot of it's risk-based. Um, but then we also have to bring in your own individual medical history. And of course, you're never going to fit a guideline because we all come in with very different medical and social backgrounds that makes it very hard. And often by smiling at your healthcare provider, you're working with them. So that, that way we're not against each other. And actually by being with your healthcare provider and actually working together as a partnership and as a team, you're going to relax more as well. So whatever the decision making is, whatever the decision or um, whatever the intervention that is that's being you know um, discussed with you from pain relief to choice of birth and place of birth or whatever, actually by smiling at your healthcare provider, you're then going to release more oxytocin as well because you're going to be a bit more relaxed about the, the process. Um, and as I was saying, you know, as, as long as it's not a, right, we need to go now, your baby needs out now, you know, there's really small um, percentage of people who have those emergency births, actually you can ask for five, 10 minutes on your own. You can ask for an hour or a day or a week to make the decision depending on what um, sort of the deciding factors are in birth. And that's going to put you more in control of the decision-making going forward. And that's going to make you feel happier and more positive going forward. Because actually, that's put the control back into your hands. And instead of being told, I had to have, or I was told I needed to have, actually, what you've been doing is someone's giving you lots of options. They've given you lots of decisions. And you've gone, I'm going to take that advice. or I'm not going to take that advice. But I have made that decision ultimately. And I've decided that I am having this because this is right for me. And again, that is anything from a home birth to a hospital birth all the way up to medical interventions going forward and that has that has put you in control of everything you know i chose to have i owned the birth i take responsibility for that and actually this is the best birth for me and my baby and that gives you that full empowerment going forward most definitely i love that angie because like you say that the the decision no one can do anything to your body without your say so and your consent so regardless of whether that is a, a quick emergency cesarean section you are still in control because you can still say no and I I have this conversation and um, quite regularly actually with women because obviously work on delivery suite so we do do cesarean sections from there more commonly than say the birth center or, or home birth and women will say well I haven't got a choice because my baby is distressed and needs to be born I said well 
well, then you have made that choice and it's a difficult choice to make. Yes, but you've made the right choice for your baby because you've said yes, not no. So regardless of what's going on, the, uh, the empowerment should always lie with women and regardless of, of their birth and whether the physiological process went perfectly or there were some little twists and turns and bumps in the road, you should always finish your birth feeling completely empowered and it can be positive regardless of kind of what happens along the way. It can still be a, an amazing experience and it should always be an amazing experience. And this is it. We live in a society where we're very lucky to have medical professionals and um, safety within childbirth increased a lot more for women you know we don't have very many maternal deaths our stillbirth rate is really low still um, going forward and actually medical intervention can save lives in a lot of scenarios don't get me wrong I think we do overuse it and we do overdo it with risk litigation and management and um, insurance policies and things but in lots of women, it can really make a big difference. And actually, we're really lucky to have that. We live in a society where we support physiological birth and where we can really facilitate that. But actually, if a fork in the road happens, a bump in the road happens, we've got something that we can do about it and we can really help bear forward. Um, and although a healthy baby and a healthy mother isn't all that what it's about, your birth experience absolutely, you know, is there on top of things. Um, your mental well-being is certainly up there. But actually, it's working uh, partnership. That's what makes the big difference, as opposed to being told what to do and working against each other. Actually, we all want to work together wherever we can do. And again, by asking all those questions, you are working with, you know, your healthcare providers, your midwives, your doctors. Um, instead of just going, well, I had to have it and no one explained this, that and the other. Actually, if you speak up and say, can you tell me this? Can you explain this? I don't understand this. I don't understand that. You know, and I do as a midwife. I'll occasionally come out with all these sort of terminology that I try my hardest to explain wherever I can do. But sometimes because we've been discussing it outside of the room as healthcare professionals, we sometimes forget to interpret those. And it doesn't take two seconds as a woman to say, or as a birth partner as well, you know, really involved with birth partners in this. Can you explain what that means? Because I haven't got a clue. We don't expect you to know. What is that? Exactly. And actually, by working together, you're going to have a much more positive experience as well going forward. And like I said, that's everywhere from choice of birth upwards within pregnancy and birth. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So Angie, everyone that comes on the podcast, I always ask for three top tips and you haven't escaped, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) So for, I guess, for ladies or, or... or birth partners when they're when they're planning for a a physiological birth so whether that whatever that might look like for them um, what can they kind of do I guess three tips to help support the kind of physiological process in their in their planning so firstly um, I would suggest taking a full antenatal course program um, so antenatal education program and the reason being you don't want to be bombarded with all these decision makings all the benefits and risks on the day you want to be able to actually go into labour and birth with a good amount of knowledge not as much as midwives and doctors, don't get me wrong, but a good amount of knowledge that you've got a foundation that you can work with in labour and birth. And also so that everything's not feeling unknown and fearful and scary, because if if you've got a really good foundation layer, um, actually you can work with that going forward. And also a programme that actually looks at the fourth trimester and the newborn period as well. Again, because we focus so heavily on labour and birth, we can't forget that we're going to be parents at the end of this and we're going to have to look after a newborn. Um, and there's lots to learn about babies after birth. So by taking an antenatal education programme, actually you're going to really help yourself prepare going forward. Um, 
my second top tip is to start drinking raspberry leaf tea if all is normal with your pregnancy. It's always worth checking with your midwife that that's safe for you to take from 34 weeks onwards because that can also um, decrease the length of your first stage of labour and decrease the pushing stage and has also been shown to decrease the interventions of um, forceps and one twos in first time mums as well. Um, undertaking perineal massage from 34 weeks. Um, so 34 weeks onwards, raspberry leaf tea, perineal massage, and that will decrease your chances of tearing and dates from 36 weeks. So that's sort of your pregnancy preparation sort of um, tips really going forward and looking into your complementary therapies that might help encourage spontaneous birth at the end of um, your pregnancy as well. Um, and then my third one is actually to get all your birthing partners on the same page as you. So actually your birthing partner is your continuity of care. We work in an NHS setting where you're unlikely to have the same midwife who looked after you during pregnancy. Um, so actually, how can we help you during birth? And that is by having a birthing partner there who has done some antenatal education with you, where you're not going to be worrying about them in labour and birth. Again, because if you're worrying about them in labour and birth, your labour's not going to go smoothly. So if you're there going, are you okay every five minutes? That means you aren't actually relaxing or focusing on what you need to do. You're worried more about what they're doing or what their facial expressions are doing. And actually, by having your birth partner on the same page with you, not only are you not going to worry about them, but also they're going to advocate for you. So they're going to be the ones to step up and ask these questions for you. They're going to be the ones to explain things to you. And they're the ones that personally are going to go, oh, do you, know, do you remember what happened there in X, Y, and Z? They're the ones that see it all from an outside perspective. Um, and actually it's hard to be a birth partner. It really is, you know, us as midwives who have looked after friends and family, you take on a huge amount of responsibility, but it's super tough to look after a friend and family because that's there's that emotional connection and actually if you've got some knowledge about what childbirth looks like about what labor looks like you're not going to be worried if they poop or um you know if they wee themselves in labor or anything on those lines because that's part and parcel of birth and, and the sort of biological processes as such so actually by having a birth partner on the same page um with the same background you're going to be working together a lot more and it's going to help with labor and birth moving forward and you're going to have that support that you require during birth that's a great tip, actually, Angie, including the birth partner, because I think when we spoke earlier about that transition stage, when women quite often want to go home or they've had enough, and, and sometimes they may act maybe slightly out of character. And for a birth partner, that can be really scary because you think, oh, my goodness, something terrible must be happening. So to have that understanding of the physiological process and what's going on, you can actually then step up and rather than thinking, oh, my goodness, we need help, something's going really wrong, you can identify we're almost there and then just help to reduce that kind of anxiety and calm your um your partner or, or whatever or whoever the relation is to you who's giving birth kind of down again and and settle things so that's that's an awesome tip I love that lovely thank you so much for joining me and I really really hope that we've helped women to understand what their bodies are doing what their bodies are so capable of and really help with that empowerment and making women feel very strong and capable as they approach their their birthing journey and I know if anyone has got any any kind of questions or things haven't made sense both um, Angie and I are fairly active on Instagram and Angie's Instagram is linked in the description of this podcast so just give us a question we are more than happy to answer your questions on helping to facilitate a physiological birth absolutely and you're amazing as women so you know really rock it yeah own it (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much Angie and I hope to catch you soon thank you so much for listening to this week's episode I really hope that you enjoyed it if you found it helpful then please hit subscribe and leave a review 
it really does make a huge difference to the number of women we can reach out to and empower. For daily free information, inspiration or details on our bespoke antenatal education, head over to my Instagram page at midwife underscore pip. Thank you and see you next time.